We are uh, returning uh, to our study in the Gospel of Mark this morning. Uh, as Pastor Nathan read from Mark chapter 10, uh, that will be our text for this morning. Uh, we've been traversing uh, through the Gospel of Mark. This is part number 23, if you can believe that, uh, in our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. We are about to enter into uh, the final week of Jesus' life. Uh, chapter 11 of Mark starts that final week, the week in which we, uh, we the, the Holy Week, which we commonly refer to it now as. Um, but here we have one more little scene, or a couple scenes, to uh, investigate and to examine before we get into that. And that comes in this latter half of chapter 10. Um, which we're going to read, or we're going to actually examine verses 32 down through the end of this chapter, Mark 10, 32. You know, uh, throughout our studies, though, we have seen uh, in Mark's presentation of Jesus' life, uh, we have been confronted, I would say, with what we have called... Uh, it, Jesus, an unexpected Messiah that has served, the, the word unexpected, has served as our sort of title, our theme for this entire study through the Gospel of Mark. Because, I think it's very relevant, because Jesus, throughout this Gospel, as we've seen, uh, has made so many claims and assertions of Him being the Messiah, the Christ, as we just recently saw, but then he fulfills those prophecies. He fulfills those words about who the anointed one would be in ways that are entirely surprising and unexpected. He continues to subvert, I would say, and to upset uh, the uh, prevailing ideas about what the promised Messiah would do and be and say and, and accomplish. Especially uh, in the minds of his apostles. They would uh, assume that the promised Messiah, as has been recorded throughout the Old Testament, would come and restore Israel to its former glory. And here Jesus is talking about death. It was entirely something that they could not make sense of. Here is this man, this teacher that we've been following. And he's been talking about himself being the Messiah. And yet he's actively avoiding political debates. And involving himself in any sort of, sort of royal scene at all. He is entirely unexpected in terms of what they thought the Messiah would be concerned with. He, he considered himself one who was set out to touch people who were deemed untouchable. He wasn't afraid of interacting with people who are, who are supposed to be off limits or outcast. We see that constantly throughout this gospel, throughout all the other gospels too. We saw that right from the very beginning. If you remember, let me read this verse for you. This is from Mark chapter 2 verse 17. Mark 2.17, Jesus says, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this serves as the baseline, as the theme, as the mission statement, we might say, of Jesus' mission. He has not come to be concerned with what they thought he would be concerned with. Rather, he has come to be with, to touch, to heal, to save the sick and the poor and the weak and the destitute. And without hesitation, he does that. He does that without fearing what the cost is to himself. 
And such is what happens uh, here in Mark chapter 10. We know as we've been looking at this text, Mark chapter 10 has, uh, has, is seeing Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. He's on the way to Jerusalem, on his way to the cross. In another text, I think it's in Luke, it talks about how he has turned his face towards the city. They are going up to Jerusalem. If you look at verse 20, uh, 32, it says, And they were in the way, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them. And they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him. Jesus, his face, his goal, his mindset, all of his thoughts are now turning and gearing towards the moment which he has been living and gearing up for his entire life. The moment when he will subject himself to the suffering and the anguish of the cross where he serves as the ultimate fulfillment of all of the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. Of course, uh, this has always been Jesus' goal. This has always been Jesus' mission. But, of course, to his apostles, to his followers, to those who are around him, this doesn't make much sense. Yet Again, we are seeing everything sort of with a different perspective. Put yourself in the shoes, in the sandals, of one of Jesus' followers here in the first century. They've been told for so long that this is how things are going to happen. And here now, Jesus, their teacher, is insisting that all the things that they thought were going to happen are not. And actually, he is going to die. See, it's still lost on his apostles how the establishment of a kingdom could occur, could be brought about through death. That doesn't seem to follow. That doesn't seem to come together. And not just death, but actually a criminal's death. A criminal's death is what leads to the inauguration and the inception of God's kingdom. How is that even possible? And yet Jesus is insisting on this. He is so adamant about this. Of course, we've had already two explicit uh, declarations and predictions of Jesus' death on the cross. You find that at the end of chapter 8 and in the middle of chapter 9. And here, in verses 33 and 34, we have the third prediction, the third really explicit expression that what Jesus is going to do in Jerusalem, what's going to come about, is not what they think. Whereas they think that he's going to Jerusalem to be crowned the king with a crown of a royal decree. He's going to be crowned with a crown of thorns. He's going to do something entirely different than what they think. Look at, again, look at verse 33. Or 32, and he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen. Here's what's about to occur, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes. And they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. Third time he said almost exactly the same words. Third time, by the way, that he has not only predicted death, but he has predicted resurrection, which is important. Again, they didn't understand that. 
This version, though, this third prediction here, uh, provides a lot more detail about those things that are going to happen, specifically about Jesus' death, when it talks about scourging and, and mocking and killing and spitting and all those sorts of things. It also includes the second suggestion that he will be betrayed. It isn't just that he is captured, but that he is betrayed as when it says that he shall be delivered up. Another indication that one of his own is going to betray him and lead all of these events and put them all in motion. Again, this announcement comes on the heels, if you remember, uh, from the previous scene of Jesus interacting with the rich young ruler and uh, explaining what exactly merits entrance into the kingdom of God. And remember, remember how he made it seem so utterly impossible. Entrance to the kingdom of God is impossible on your own. And this was startling. This was uh, amazing to those in Eutrust. Such is why we have that detail in verse 32. That those who were following him were amazed and afraid. All of what Jesus was saying was entirely unexpected. Imagine. Imagine having religion explained and expounded to you for centuries. That it happens a certain way through rites and rituals and customs and ceremonies and practices that you have to proceed with. And then suddenly some carpenter's son from Nazareth, small town Nazareth, is saying now that actually that's not how it works. That actually all those things that you came to think about religion, that's actually not religion at all. And not to mention the fact that this, uh, this teacher is now insisting that death is the primary function of this religion. Not only his death, but remember as he says at the end of chapter 8, death to yourself. Everyone who follows me has to take up their own cross. It's an entirely different way of thinking about religion and spirituality and faith and such is why we can understand why those who were following him were both amazed and terrified and entirely disconcerted by all the things that he was saying. They were feeling all of those things at once. All of their preconceived notions about the truth, religion, grace, faith, religion are being upset, are being turned on their head. And one thing I know for sure is that Jesus' closest followers were the ones who misunderstood this the most. They had the hardest time consolidating all the things that they thought that they knew that the Messiah would do and say with what Jesus was telling them. The apostles, his own closest comrades, all of their expectations about the Messiah were being shredded by Jesus' insistence on death and resurrection. And that pattern continues here. He has just insisted again the third time explicitly out in the open publicly. I am going to die. I'm going to be betrayed and killed and mocked and scourged and hung on a cross. And yet I'm going to rise again. And yet they misunderstand it. They miss it. Here in this latter half of chapter 10, I think we have three, I would like to call them fatal flaws in the apostles view of glory. Of Jesus' earthly assignment that leads to ultimate glory. I'm going to look at them really quick. The first one comes in verse 35 down through verse 40. Here I think we see this. A miscalculation of the scope of Jesus' mission. 
A miscalculation of the scope of Jesus' mission. Look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on the right hand, and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. You know, it's fascinating to me that um, in, the, in the events following the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 9, that every apostle that was present to that moment, that was allowed to see the transfigured glory of, the, of, the, of, the, of their Savior, of their Messiah, their King, every apostle that was there proceeds to miscalculate what that moment meant. If you remember, uh, Jesus invites Peter, James, and John to come up with him onto that mount where he is transfigured in all of his majesty and glory. And they see that. Peter, James, and John witness that with their very own eyes. And yet, in the hours and days after that, all of them, Peter, James, and John, all miss that moment and what it meant and what it means for them and for the future. If you remember in chapter 9 verses 5 and 6, Peter is there witnessing and he immediately says we should just stay here. Let's just stay here and inaugurate the kingdom. He sees Elijah and he sees Moses and he sees the transfigured Messiah in front of him. He suggests that this is where it should happen. Let's just have your glory now. If you remember too, John later on. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, in verse 38, if you remember, he, said, or he, he testifies, he confesses to the fact that they had actually stopped someone else from casting out demons. If you remember that, he actually stopped someone else from ministering in the name of Christ. He actually wanted to confine the glory that Jesus represented to only those who were like him. He had missed it. He had missed the moment. And then here. Here it says James and John. But James takes the forefront. Again now we have Peter, James and John. All mentioned in the aftermath of the transfiguration. As missing what the transfiguration meant. And they make this alarming request. No doubt I think stemming from the glory that they witnessed. But look at what they request again. They come up to Jesus. And they say. Grant us, give unto us, that we may sit on one, one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. Here, the sons of Zebedee live up to their name. They act a lot like boys here. James and John, the sons of thunder. They come up to Jesus saying, teacher, we want you to give us what we want. Give us what we desire. They kind of presume to put Jesus in sort of the role of a genie almost. Give us what we want. And Jesus, I love the fact, again, we have Jesus taking them at their own game. Remember from the rich young ruler, he proceeds to explain the law and say, if you really want to win righteousness in the kingdom, here's the standard. And he takes the rich young ruler at his own request. And here he's doing the same with his apostles. Jesus could have laughed and scoffed them off, being like, what in the world are you asking me? What, what, what is this type of request? Well, he doesn't. He calmly, assertively says, okay, what do you want me to do? Verse 36, 
What do you want that I should do for you? He says, I'll take you at your own game. What do you want? And just like the rich young ruler, they missed the point. And look at what they ask for. Again, grant us glory. Guarantee us seats of honor and power and prestige and preeminence when your kingdom comes. When all of that comes about and the kingdom is here and you are reigning on your throne, we want to rule alongside you. We want to be the highest seats in the kingdom. We want to be on your left, on your left and on your right. We want to have that power. Give us that. Really kind of presumptuous to ask Jesus of this. I think it's also proof that they did not understand the message that Jesus was trying to convey to them. Was trying to show them. They had grossly miscalculated what it was uh, entailing that Jesus was journeying to Jerusalem. Again, he wasn't going to be crowned with a royal crown, but with a crown of thorns. You see, they were still thinking nationalistically. They were still thinking in terms of an earthly or a political kingdom. Here, you're going to establish your rule, Jesus. Help us to have a part in that rule. Help us to have positions of honor and seats of glory along with you. Jesus, when you sit on your throne, can you make sure the ones right there with you? They're presuming to be able to have that same type of glory that Jesus already possesses. And some commentators, as I was reading and studying, they they view this request from James and John as sort of an honest and a devoted request. And I think that's, that's partly true. There's, there's some love and devotion that is in, in, entailed in their request. But overriding the tenor of what they ask Jesus. What they ask Jesus for is so much self-interest and self-regard. Give us what we want. Give us what we desire. We desire to be with you and have seats of honor and glory with you. And Jesus, he looks these boys, these sons of thunder in the eye. And he gives them, I would say, a sad and a pitiful reply. Look at verse 38. But Jesus said unto them, you, ye know not what ye ask. You don't know what you're asking for. You don't know the scope of what you're asking for when you ask to have seats of glory. When you ask to have seats of dominion in my kingdom. You see, James and John were making a really daring and devout appeal to Jesus. But they weren't fully aware of what that appeal meant. Of what it meant to have that type of glory. They were ignorant of what it would cost them. Of what it would cost their Lord. And I think such is what Jesus infers when he responds to them. Look again at verse 38. Ye know not what ye ask. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of? And be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? He's trying to raise their awareness. He's trying to heighten what they think about what is going to happen. You cannot even fathom about what I am about to do, about the truck, the, the drink I'm going to have to drink of, and the baptism I'm going to have to be submitted to. You don't have any clue of what it entails, of what it involves. They ask them, Can you do what you think I'm about to do? And they hastily say, Look at verse 39. And they said to him, We can. <laughs> 
we can. At least they thought so. (laughs) They haste to reply, we can live up to that glory, God. We can drink of the same cup that you're going to have to drink of. And partake of the same baptism that you're going to have to be baptized with. See, they suppose themselves up to the task of ushering in God's kingdom. They presume themselves to be capable enough and strong enough and efficient enough to hasten in the inception of the kingdom of glory of God. And isn't that just like us? That us in our pride and in our self-righteousness, we think we're the ones responsible for the kingdom of God to come about. That it's all up to us. And if we don't do it, it's not going to happen. And that God has put this on us and that we have to do this. God's kingdom is not on your shoulders. It's on the shoulders of a Christ who ascended a cross for you. Such as I think what Jesus is trying to get them to see. That they aren't that good. That they aren't that great. That they aren't that important. Whereas they presume to think that they can uh, partake and, and fulfill all the things that Jesus had to fulfill. They were not even, they were clueless to what that meant. And he reminds James and John that the burden of his life, the burden of Jesus' life is far greater, of far greater consequence than they could ever imagine. Look at verse 39. And Jesus said unto them, ye shall indeed Drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. You see, Jesus, his destiny was one that was filled with suffering and violence and death. The cup that Jesus was about to partake of was the cup of God's wrath. The baptism that he was about to participate in was the baptism of suffering and death. Again, all a result of your and my sin. The sins of those who were right in front of him right that day. Their sins were bringing about what he was about to suffer. What he was about to drink. And he drinks all of that. For you and for me. He drinks all of our condemnation. And he is baptized with all of our judgment. On behalf of your sin and mine. And the sins of the whole world. This was his mission. You have to keep that in mind. As you see Jesus' response to them. Because he is intimating that yes. They will suffer. Jesus, he, he and wants to get across to them that their suffering, though, would not be as great as the burden that he was about to bear. His burden was going to win righteousness for all. Theirs was going to show forth the righteousness by which they were saved. This is the scope of Jesus' mission. It's far bigger and grander and broader than you or I could ever think and comprehend. He's trying to show them that his sufferings will lead to the salvation of the world. 
Of course, he does indicate that they will share partly in what he shares and what he endures. But I think what he's trying to do in, in the sharing of sufferings is that their sufferings is for God's glory. But Jesus' suffering is for the sake of the world's sin. And that's a cup. That's a baptism that they could never fully be aware of. Again, it's this miscalculation of what Jesus' mission really was. Again, that leads me to the second flaw, the second lesson we can take from this. Look at verses 41 through 45. Because here, I think we see a misunderstanding of the program of Jesus' purpose. Look at verse 41. Because he has just given them this response to this incredible request that they make. And look at verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. I love that Mark includes the fact that the other ten, they overhear, they are made aware of what James and John had asked Jesus just previously. They had asked Jesus for the most prominent and preeminent spots in glory. And the other ten are, of course, naturally and understandably displeased with them trying to weasel their way into higher seats of authority and power. They don't like that. Maybe they think that, oh man, we should have asked him that first. Maybe they're jealous that James and John had taken away the the fire, the zeal, so to speak, by asking at first. Or maybe they're just jealous. Nevertheless, Jesus notices this sort of disruption happening among his apostles. He notices what is happening. It says, Jesus, uh, he says, called them to him. He notices perhaps there was a raising of voices. Perhaps there was a a, a clamor uh, starting to go on about greatness and glory in the kingdom. Again, this has already happened. If you look at chapter 9 verses 33 through 35, they had already started to argue about that. Perhaps this is stirring that all up again. But Jesus wants to be completely clear with the type of leadership and lordship that is going to accompany his kingdom. Because the kingdom that he is going to rule, the authority that he is going to have, it looks way different than the rule and the authority that they were accustomed to, that they were familiar with. Again, look at verse 42. He says, you you know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. You see, rather than exercising authority, rather than trying to clamor for seats of position and power and prestige and honor, they were to be known for being the ministers and servants of all. You want to be great in my kingdom? Jesus is saying, be the everyone's servant. Be a minister unto the lowliest of all the people. Rather than flaunting their power, rather than exercising their authority from seats of influence, they are to be known for giving themselves completely for the sake of others. You know, that's what that word means there. When he says that in verse 44, 
That the chiefest among you has to be the servant of all? Servant there literally means one who gives up himself for the sake of another. One who gives up his own regard and is devoted entirely to another's own interests and well-being. That's what it means to have glory. That's what it means to be great. You can see there. You can see that this was Jesus' purpose. This was Jesus' intensest mission to be the servant of all. And not just all of them, but all, meaning the world. Such is why it leads us to verse 45, where here we get the most, I think, the clearest definition and assertion of what Jesus was coming to do in his mission in this world. Which is what? For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. This is Jesus' purpose. Not to be served, not to have things and glory come his way, not to have people fawn over him and flaunt him and and come about him and all of the praise that he is rightfully due. His mission and only concern was to be their minister, was, as he has just said, to give up himself for the regard of those who were going to spit on him in a few days. To give up himself, to give of his own life for those who were shouting, crucify him. They would shout that in just a few short days. This was his mission. The prevailing purpose of Jesus as the Messiah was not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Not to have a life of luxury and lavish opulence, but to give his life as the ransom, as the payment for the the many's sins. For the sins of the world. This was his concern. This was his drive. This was his mission, his purpose. Not with setting up himself as an earthly ruler and having a high throne with a seat of authority that he could overlook all peoples and nations and principalities and powers and wield his power with an iron fist. That wasn't his concern. Even though he deserved that as the king. No, his concern was with being the death and the resurrection of the entire world. His concern was righting the wrong that was made all the way back in the garden by Adam. With fixing that fatal flaw of humanity. And now he is saying, I'm going to be all of humanity's ransom from the the condemnation that they rightfully deserve. This is my mission. He was concerned with being every man's ransom. Think about that. This is the weight that is on Jesus' shoulders as he turns towards Jerusalem. That this is what is imminent. This is the impending fate that he has been living his whole entire life knowing he was going to have to face. It's the weight of that cross. It's the weight of glory. 
That his crown would not be a, a kingly crown that we so often think about. It would be a crown that would pierce his skull. And as the blood streamed down his face, he was paying the ransom for your sin and for my sin and the sins of the world. You know that phrase, this isn't in my notes, but it just brings it back to mind. That phrase where he says, be the ransom for many it makes me think of Romans chapter 5. Let me read these verses for you. Romans chapter 5 verse 18 says this. Therefore as by one offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation. That's Adam. The one offense was Adam in the garden. He being our representative. He sinned and a curse came upon all men. And then Paul here writes, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. That's Christ. Paul continues, for as by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, Jesus Christ, shall many be made righteous. Why? Because he is our ransom. Because he comes saying, I will pay for their sins with the, uh, the shedding of my own blood. I will be the obedience. I will be the death. I will be the resurrection. That I might also be the justification for sinners who would rather spit on me. I will be the obedience of the world. So that they might have life in me. This was his singular purpose. Not setting up an earthly throne. You can see perhaps into Jesus' mind. And his disgust at the fact that they would think that that's his mission. His mission is dealing with sin and death. And his apostles are only thinking in terms of principalities and powers. He's saying, you've, you've missed it. You've missed my purpose. My purpose was to be the obedience that you could never fulfill. My purpose was to live up to the law that you could never live up to. To be your standard and substitute of righteousness. Because you could never merit it on your own. He says, We're almost remember how impossible it was? I just talked about the impossibility of a camel going through the eye of a needle. That's you trying to get into heaven by yourself. Such is why me, I, my purpose is to be your ransom. This is the mission of the Son of Man. Singularly focused on defeating death, hell, and the grave. Commentator G. Campbell Morgan, he says it this way, The Son of Man did not come to gain a kingly crown in the way we usually seek to do so. The Son of Man did not come to raise his voice and clamor amid men as to who is to be the principal power in the world. The Son of Man came to divest himself of dignities and strip himself of all royalties and bind upon himself the yoke of slavery and service that he might lift others and so win the ultimate throne of empire by the love and loyalty of those whom he thus lifts. This 
It's the way that Jesus redeems and ushers in his kingdom. This is his chiefest, most glorious purpose was to die. Was to be our death and resurrection. As Paul elsewhere talks about, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 1, that he might also be our redemption and wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. This was his prevailing purpose. Which leads me then to a third flaw or lesson in our text. Which we find in verse 46. Down through the end of the chapter. We have here, I think, a misreading of the subjects of Jesus' compassion. A misreading of the subjects of Jesus' compassion. Look at verse 46. And they came to Jericho. Again, they're on their way to Jerusalem and they have to pass here now through Jericho. And as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. So here we see, in order to prove precisely who would be the objects of the divine compassion of God, Jesus makes a point to showcase exactly who the subjects of his kingdom would be. Who would be included? Who would be brought in? Who would he reign over? And how would he reign? He shows them that here in this scene. They go through Jericho. A great clamor and crowd of people is by Jesus on the way. And a blind beggar named Bartimaeus here is here sitting by the highway begging. And he overhears that Jesus is going to pass by. That this Jesus of Nazareth, he is passing through the streets. Look at verse 47. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth... He began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace. So he's crying out, I want you to heal me. Jesus, have mercy, heal me, touch me, cleanse me from my blindness. And those accompanying Jesus, those in Jesus' closest company are embarrassed perhaps by this display. They start telling Jesus or telling Bartimaeus, simmer down, quiet down. This is, this is, this is not uh, pro- proper. This isn't how you go about talking to this one Jesus. They try to get Bartimaeus to quiet down. But notice that makes him just cry out all the louder. Look at verse 48. And many charged him that he should, should hold his peace. But he cried the more a great deal. Thou son of David have mercy on me. And then notice these words. And Jesus stood still. Bartimaeus cries out. Do you notice that? For the son of David. Very interesting title. That he knew about this Jesus. He knew something of Jesus' true identity. Even if he didn't know fully what that meant. He possessed faith enough. Perhaps he had heard through the ages what it was going to what it was going to look like when the Messiah came. And here perhaps he possessed what the apostles lacked. Think about it. a blind beggar here possesses what the apostles lacked, namely faith that this Jesus is the son of David. Because this is what makes Jesus stand still. This is what makes Jesus stop in his tracks. 
Notice verse 49. Again, and Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he, that is Bartimaeus, casting away his garments, rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. He's immediately healed. Immediately cleansed. He can see as if he had never seen before. Because he had faith. Thy faith hath made thee whole. It's incredible to me that this is what makes Jesus stop in his tracks. Again, he is concerned with the cross. Concerned with going up to Jerusalem and fulfilling all these things we had just talked about. And you notice what makes him stop and stand still? The faith of a blind beggar. The faith of a man that thousands of people have passed by on the way without even a second thought. Without even a cursory glance at him. And there Jesus stops. And takes notice of Bartimaeus. And he touches him. And he heals him. And he is aiming to show. That, that and inspire uh, this type of faith. In the hearts of those who would follow him. Bartimaeus he knew his deepest need. And that formed his only request. Let me see. And here I think Jesus is, uh, is showing accurately. And wholly and, f- and fully. Exactly who make up God's kingdom. The subjects of God's kingdom are those who are desperate in faith. Who are like this blind beggar who know their deepest need and they go in faith to the son of David for their deepest need. They are unafraid. Unafraid what the crowds might think if they cry out in faith to this son of David. They are desperate enough to know that this Lord is a Lord of mercy. One writer says it this way. The kingdom Jesus leads belongs to those who have nothing to bring to him except need and vulnerability. To those who totally lack anything worth of worth to bring to Jesus. He still opens his arms and places his hands upon us and pronounces a prayer of blessing. This is the type of kingdom that Jesus is about to inaugurate and establish. A kingdom that belongs to those who have nothing to give back to him that's worth anything that they have received. Jesus is this king. This Lord of all lords and his subjects are those who are honest enough to know that they are in need and desperate enough to believe in his salvation. I pray to have that type of faith. <laughs> That's desperate. That knows that the son of David, the son of man, he is particularly focused on the desperate. And he stops and stands still to take notice of the faith of those who are desperate. This, you see, I think brings into full picture what Jesus was trying to accomplish. Accomplish 
with his own life, but also accomplished in the lives of his apostles. Because I think like them, we are often guilty of confining, controlling what God was, is doing to just us, to our own little worlds. Our fatal flaw, I think, in the view of glory is seeing that glory only from our perspective without keeping a fuller, bigger, broader view of what Jesus wants to do, of what Jesus will do. I think that's an apt thing to remember in the season we are in. There's a bigger purpose going on. There's a bigger plan, there's a bigger mission, and it might seem ominous and scary and fearful. It might seem confusing. We can like, likely relate to the apostles who are now utterly confused that their king and Messiah has to die. That appears that it's totally incompatible. And here we can feel as if there's no king. And Jesus aims to show us. He's still king. He's still ruling. He has accomplished all of his purposes. And he will not leave one of them unfinished. When he says it is finished. All of them. All of the promises of God. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. Find their yes and amen in him. He's the one who certifies them all. As finished in and of himself. Your ransom and the world's redemption. They find their yes and amen in this king of glory. This king who comes and notices the faith of a blind beggar. Where is your faith this morning? Where does it rest? Let us pray.